Let me turn it on. There we go. My fault, guys. Um, this is one of my, um, my favorite Sundays of the year and um, has nothing to do with the significance of the Sunday, the date, anything really happening in worship. I just love watching y'all get confused when you walk in. And, uh, and, and if you're a guest with us today, and this makes no sense, because uh, I know inside jokes are very dangerous, um, we've, we switched this week. If you're here for the first time, up in, during our winter months, we have a different seating setup. Those of you that come regularly know. And so as we have a lot of our friends from up north head back north, uh, we kind of switched the seating arrangement. So this morning, before the 815 service, I was sitting in the back corner with Pastor Don Burkhart. And I'm not kidding. It's funny, to, when you, especially when you don't know I'm around and I can listen to what people are saying. People would come in because we're creatures of habit. We are. Most of you sit in the same place every week. And, and I do too. So that's, I, but you sit in the same place, and so you have to stop and strategically think what chair is closest to the place you normally sit when we're in the other setup. And, you, and you're still in the same proximities, but it throws me too because I normally know where to look for you, and I have to figure out where you are. So it's, it, is, it is actually a lot of fun to watch you kind of get a little confused for a moment. And, um, but it is, so this is, uh, you know, this will be our setup. For a while, unless I could just come up with something to change it, just to mess with you. But um, this morning, we are uh, in, in, Acts, in Acts again. If you were here last week, we were in Acts chapter 10 and 11. That was our focus of the message last week. Uh, this morning, we're in Acts chapter 16. And this story is one of the many stories in Acts that continues to build on the theme that I shared with us in the sermon last week. And that is that in that moment, and if you weren't with us, last week's sermon uh, focused on the vision that God gave Peter um, in visiting and, and to going to visit Cornelius, who was a Gentile, who was, wanted to know about Jesus. And this vision that, that Peter gets of, of these foods, these animals that come down from heaven, this, this blanket that's filled with these foods and animals that had been forbidden to the Jewish people, and God's um, command to eat. To basically, God kind of breaks down these walls that had existed. And, and it's this message that conveys this truth that Peter finally understands that the gospel of Jesus is for all people in all places at all times. It's not just for a select few. And so at that point in the, in the book of Acts, the, the narrative shifts a little bit. And it becomes a, a gospel that is carried throughout the world. That is not just to the Jewish communities that begins to permeate and, and shape the Gentile, the, the non-Jewish communities. And the, the architect of that message, if you will, the one who is most central to, our, to the narrative of carrying the gospel to those non-Jewish communities is Paul. And that's what happens in Acts chapter 10. Really, the, 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 next, the, the narrative of Acts begins to shift and Paul becomes the central figure for the rest of the book of Acts. And I share that with you because this is a story of Paul. This is Paul and Silas, who was at this point in Paul's ministry, was his uh, missionary partner. And they have come into the city of um, Philippi, where we know that Paul would one day, or the city to which he would write the letter Philippians, those Christians in that community. But this is the beginning of his ministry there. This is the beginning of his evangelism there. And so we have a very unique and powerful story that happens, an encounter 
an experience, if you will, of Paul and Silas, and we're going to focus on that this morning, and we pick it up at Acts chapter 16, um, chapter 16, beginning at verse 16. And this is what we read. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Now, I want to pause for a moment at that verse, at verse 20 there. They are throwing the city into an uproar. That is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. That is one of my favorite descriptions of the church in the entire Bible. They are turning, in fact, some translations say they are turning the city upside down. I love that. Wouldn't it be powerful to be a part of a church that turned the city upside down, that made such an impact that it unsettled those who were acting in unfaithful and, and immoral ways, because that's really what's happening here. But they're turning the city upside down. That's what they say Paul and Silas and these Christians are doing. I love that description. It has nothing to do with the sermon, but that was free, and so I wanted to offer it to you. <laughs> Beginning Now picking back up at verse 22. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison was shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. His prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Do not harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sir, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, that we would be filled with joy. That we would be filled with joy because what we believe and the one in whom we believe, and that is Christ. Speak to us your truth. Inspire these words and shape our lives and our hearts. 
we pray in Christ Jesus. Amen. Through the course of our lives, from birth to death, from our first memories to our last memories, we are shaped powerfully by our experiences. That's, we know that. We know that the things we experience, the lives that we lead, the encounters that we have shape our lives. And there are certain moments in our lives and times in our lives when our experiences have a, have a more profound effect on us, certain experiences that have deep, profound effects on us. And I believe one of the characteristics of a lot of those experiences is that they're first times. Sometimes the first time we have unique experiences, it has a more powerful impact. Maybe your first day of school. Uh, your first time being away overnight from, from family or, or whatever your safety net is. First jobs, first, um, you know, first relationships. There's just a number of times in our lives that the first time we have a unique experience, it has a, a more profound effect, even if we have that experience repeatedly over the course of our lives. And, and, I, and I begin with that because I was reflecting this week on one of those uh, profound experiences in my ministry. And it happened in my first appointment in Largo. And I was asked to go to visit with a member of the church in her home. And I was asked to go visit because of the circumstances that had just become known in her life. Uh, she had, for many, many years, well before I had been there as an associate, uh, she had been a very, very faithful member of the church. She was a musician. Uh, she sang in the choir. You know, she was part of Bible study groups. She was just one of those doers that was, was active in so, so many ways. And she had started to, um, to suffer physically. She was having um, symptoms that were, um, that were limiting her mobility and some of her, her physical um, movement. And she had gone to the doctor and had been through the tests and had just been diagnosed with Lou Gehrig disease, or ALS. And so I was asked or, or made time to go and, and have a chance to visit with her in her home. She was at this point already wheelchair bound. And I remember going, I remember driving to her house and thinking, um, this is going to be, um, this is going to be heavy. This is going to be emotional. This is going to be really a difficult and, and, a, and, a, and a very emotionally draining visit because of, of what she had learned and, and what the reality of her, her life was and the trajectory of her life was. And I had a very clear idea of what I expected to happen and what I expected to experience. And what I actually experienced couldn't have been more opposite than what I anticipated. I remember walking into her house, into her living room, and her adult children were already there, and a couple friends had come over, so there was a few of us there. And for the next hour, hour and a half, I can't tell you how long I was there, it was a party. We sat around, and we told stories, and we laughed, and we, 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 we enjoyed fellowship together. We sang together. I didn't lead it, but we sang together. Uh, we prayed together. That I did lead. Um, we had a good time for an hour to an hour. We just enjoyed being together, and she was laughing and smiling and enjoying the moment. And I remember walking out of her house thinking, I don't know what I gave but I know what I just received. 
I know that I've been blessed. And thinking what I thought that experience was going to be and what I experienced just didn't seem to fit. I expected this heaviness and this grief and this sorrow and this kind of woe is me feeling. And that's the opposite of what I got, what I experienced, what I received. And that has repeated itself a number of times over the year in ministry, in my years in ministry. But it was one of the most profound experiences I had because it was the first time I just remember really internalizing that. There are times in our lives when what we expect and what we experience just don't match up. They just don't, they don't come together. Sometimes that's really, really good. There's a lot of times when that's a good thing that we expect the worst, we anticipate the worst, uh, we believe the worst, and it doesn't happen that way. And we walk away very, very thankful that what we expected and what we got were not the same thing. I can't tell you how often. I, I'm by nature, I don't know how you are, but if I am, am going into an experience where I think there's going to be some tension or there's some problems or, or things have, that, that could kind of take a turn for the worse, I anticipate it. I mentally prepare for the worst, and I spend a lot of wasted energy um, concocting scenarios in my head that nine out of ten times don't, don't, don't materialize that way, and I'm very thankful for that. I wish I'd learned from it, but I'm a stubborn um, so sometimes that's a really good thing. And then there are times it's not. There are times we have really high expectations and they're not met. That can go both ways. But sometimes they just don't fit. And, and, I, and I share that as the foundation because that's the framework by which I read this story of Paul and Silas. A, a contradiction, if you will, between expectations and reality. What I would expect Paul and Silas to be doing, thinking, feeling, proclaiming, and what they really do. And so as I read the story, three words began to shape my um, reading of this, this narrative, of this experience in Paul and Silas's life. And those three words are attitude, action, and impact. Attitude, action, and impact. And we're going to talk about those for a few moments together this morning. Let's talk about attitude. To understand the significance of Paul and Silas's attitude, we have to fully grasp the events that lead them into this prison experience. This place that expectations and actions seem to contradict. They're in Philippi. They're there proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're doing what Paul does all the time. And as they're going around and sharing Jesus... The, the writer of Acts says that this young girl daily would follow them around. And I want you to hear again the words that she would speak. She says this, She followed Paul and the rest of us, saying, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, hear that. These, servants are the, are, these are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. That's a pretty positive thing to be saying about Paul and Silas. She's not criticizing them. She's not condemning them. She's not speaking um, untruth about them. But she day in and day out follows them around yelling this. And at some point, she passes a threshold. At some point, she steps over a line from her actions being, whether they were affirming or positive, she passes the annoyance line. She passes that line where she just finally gets on Paul's last nerve. Parents, can I get an amen? Do you know what this is like? 
You know what it's like when your kids pass. You don't know what it's like, but the rest of you know what it's like. I was pointing to my dad, if you don't know who I was pointing to. Um, but, but when even if it's an okay thing, you know, it's just, it's, it, it, she's pestering them. She's driving them nuts every day, saying the same thing. And so Paul takes action. And I don't know why it took Paul a few days to do this. I don't know whether Paul saw something on this day that God hadn't revealed to him sooner. It's all speculation. But he realizes that this young girl has a spirit that is in possession of her. That has a, has a spirit to the, that is got her kind of chained and imprisoned, if you will. And so Paul liberates her. He speaks God's truth into her life. He drives out the spirit. He frees her from this demon. And in doing so, he steps into a whole world of trouble. Because what was her chains was somebody else's income. And in doing so, in liberating her and freeing her from this spirit, he threatened, and he didn't threaten, he undermined the money of somebody else because she was a slave girl. And to, to, to men in the city, she was not a person. She was not somebody to be valued. She was a commodity. And when Paul and Silas delivered her, they cost people money. And you want to make an enemy in life, threaten somebody's money. Threaten somebody's money. That's why the Scriptures warn us the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Because they didn't care about her. They didn't value her. They didn't love her. They profited from her. And Paul undermined their profits. And that is the reason that Paul and Silas get dragged before the city officials. They get beaten and they get thrown in jail. Now why is that important? Because you have to see how contradictory these realities are. Paul and Silas do the right thing. They do something out of compassion. They do something out of love. They do something out of obedience. They are open to the Spirit of God. And where does it lead them? It leads them to being beaten and chained and thrown into jail. Now ask yourself this. If you knew you were faithful and you were suffering for it, what would your attitude toward God be? If you knew you were doing exactly what God wanted you to do and for it you were paying a terrible price, what would your attitude toward God be? That may be an uncomfortable question for us to answer. It is for me because there's a tendency to believe that my attitude toward God would not be positive and affirming. That my attitude toward God would be angry and demanding. How is it, Lord, that I can do what you tell me to do and this is what it costs me? This is where it gets me. That's what we would expect of Paul and Silas, but that's not what we get. In fact, it's the lyrics to a song. When I was growing up in, in youth group and, and as a young adult, and I used to go, and Tony and I would go a lot of times to, to Christian concerts like our kids do, um, one of the up-and-coming Christian musicians that I remember seeing as a junior in high school, I believe, was this little-known um, singer-songwriter by the name of Stephen Curtis Chapman. Now, those of you that are into Christian music know Stephen Curtis Chapman. If you don't, just know that that little unknown songwriter became one of the most prolific Christian recording artists probably in, in history and has written wonderful songs of worship and praise over the years. But I remember seeing him when nobody knew who he was. I didn't know who he was. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. But he wrote one of his earlier songs. It was a song called What Kind of Joy. 
And it's about Paul and Silas. And, and the lyrics say that anybody with his pain which would have shaken their fists at heaven and given up the fight. Because pain had been Paul's middle name ever since he'd been captured by God's blinding light. But just when you think that hope should be dying, listen and hear him singing a song. And it says, what kind of joy is this that counts it a blessing to suffer? What kind of joy is it that gives a prisoner his song? This is the joy of a soul that's forgiven and free. We don't expect a jailhouse to be a place of joy. We don't expect a prison to be a, a place of praise and celebration. But that's exactly what it was for Paul and Silas. Because they knew the truth that Paul would proclaim later in Romans 8. That there was nothing in life or death or depths nor heights nor things present or things to come that would separate them from the love of God. Nothing that separated him from the love of God. And he knew that whether it was proclaiming Jesus in the town square, whether it was taking Jesus to the synagogues, or was singing praises and prayers in a jail cell chained up, that the location didn't change the mandate, that God never abandoned them, never left them, never forsake them. So even in the midst of their prison, they could sing their songs of praise. And I wonder whether I can. And I wonder whether you can. Most of us probably don't know what it's like, hopefully, to be chained up and imprisoned. Maybe a few do. But you know what it's like to be chained up. Maybe not literally. But what's a prison? It's a place where your choices are taken away from you. Your options are limited. The walls are closing in on you. Many of you don't know what that's like, whether literally or figuratively, emotionally, spiritually, to think that we found this place where all of a sudden we just don't know what our choices are anymore and the walls are closing in. And in those moments, do we trust in God's presence? What's our attitude? What's my attitude? What's your attitude? Paul and Silas show us an attitude that even believes, even there, God is there. Even in those moments, God is present. And they trust in that. Their attitude is an attitude of faith. In 1736, a couple Anglican priests made a, a trip across the Atlantic Ocean to begin ministry in what was then the, the colonies. To, to begin ministry, they were going to Georgia. And they were going to be in ministry not only to the settlers there, but to the indigenous people. And it was on that journey across the ocean that they were beset upon by a terrible storm, so much so that they thought they were going to lose their lives. And they were panicked, and they were frightened, as almost everybody on board was. But in the midst of this turmoil and fear, there was a group of, of German Christians, Moravians, that gathered together, and they prayed, and they sang songs of praise and worship as their very lives were at risk. And it's so impressed upon this Anglican priest that in his journal of that day, that so was so much of his focus that in the midst of his own fear, he wondered how they could have such an attitude of trust, such an attitude of faith, such an attitude of assurance. It was because they knew that even in the storm, God was there. And so their attitude 
was on Christ. And it shaped their actions. It shaped their actions so even in the midst of that, they could pray and they could worship. And that's exactly what Paul and Silas did. Their attitude shapes their actions. They pray and worship. And it shapes the next thing that happens. Because the Scriptures then go on to say that as they're worshiping together, that the earth shook. It was an earthquake. And that their chains were released and the doors to the prison swing open. Now, we read into that, we, we read into that that God did that. And I think that's the right way to read it. But it's interesting, it never says that God was the architect of the earthquake. It just says it happened. But now again, let's put ourselves in this, and I do believe God's hand was in it. But, but let's put ourselves now in Paul and Silas' shoes. You've been in prison for doing a faithful and obedient thing. You're singing and worshiping. Your attitude is one of trust. And all of a sudden, the earth shakes the chains fall off and the doors open. What's your next step? Yeah. Out the door. Exactly. Thank you, Lord. You have delivered us. Time to go. It is time to go. That's what we would expect. And that's what their jailer expected. Because when he saw the chains were, were released, when he saw the doors were open, what's the next thing he goes to do? He grabs his sword. And he prepares to take his own life because he's going to be accountable for this. And to lose your prisoners would cost you your life. So before Rome can take it, he's going to finish it. And as he's preparing to take his last breath, he hears the words he doesn't expect to hear. Stop! Don't do it! We're still here. We're still here. Now why is it that Paul and Silas do what none of us would have done? Why is it that Paul and Silas say put when it seems like their deliverance had come? It's because their attitude shaped their action. An attitude that is on God, that is trust in God, shapes action that is focused on others. Why don't they leave? I believe wholeheartedly because they knew their freedom would cost that jailer his life. And they were more worried about him than they were themselves. They were more focused on behaving in such a way that would bless him than it was to receive that blessing themselves. So they stay put so their jailer would not suffer for their freedom. And here's what we need to know. That, action, that attitude on God is action that is focused, leads to action that is focused on others. That's the way of Christ. His whole life was directed by a life and action and doing things for the benefit of others. And that's what Paul and Silas do. They choose to stay because they were more concerned with that jailer than they were themselves. I want you to think for a moment, the people in your life over the years that have shaped your faith, that have been mentors, that have been examples, that have been men and women, parents, grandparents, teachers, neighbors, church members, whoever, that have been a model for you of what it looks like to live a Christ-like life. A, a follower of Jesus, a, a believer, somebody who lives their faith. I want you to think about who those people are. And I want you to imagine that I asked you to list the characteristics of their lives, the qualities of their lives. In fact, imagine we had a big board here and you just started shouting out the qualities of the lives of the people that have been an example for, of Christ for you, who have had an attitude of faith. We would have a list a mile long. If we stayed till we exhausted every word and every description we came up with, our list would fill board after board after board. And here's what I believe. I believe that of all those thousands of words we could come up with, all those hundreds of descriptions we could name, 
that nowhere on any board would we find the word selfish. That nowhere on any description that we would list of those who have lived a Christ-like example for us would we find the word selfish. Because when our attitude is on God and our actions are shaped by God, we become outward-focused, not inward-focused. That's the way of Jesus. And that's what Paul and Silas did. They had a chance for freedom, but they were more worried about someone else than they were themselves. So attitude that shapes our action that leads to impact. And this is the payoff. Because when that jailer hears their voice, when that jailer knows that he doesn't have to take his own life because his prisoners have not fled, he falls down before them and he asks them this question, what must I do to be saved? He asks them basically this, I want what you have. Tell me how to have it. Tell me how to have it. Because what he has seen is not only men whose words lifted up their God, but whose actions gave testimony. that Their walk matched their talk. And their life became a testimony. And it left an impact that would shape his and his household's eternity. Those men and women that you were thinking of, those examples, those mentors, they came to your mind because they left an impact. They've shaped you. And I guarantee they didn't just shape you by the things they said, but because what they said matched the way that they lived. What they said matched the way that they lived. Attitude that leads to action that makes an impact. I told you about those two Anglican priests that traveled to Georgia that were afraid they were going to die, that were shaped by the Moravians. Well, they, they got to Georgia, and when they did, they continued to spend time with the Moravian community there in the New World. And when they went back to England separately, but they both made their way back to England in about a year and a half to two years, they continued to spend time with the Moravians and to be shaped by them and, and to desire and to find that same kind of trust and faith that they had seen witnessed on that ship. One of those Anglican priests, one night on May 24th, 1738, decided to go to a prayer meeting on a street in England called Aldersgate. And it was there that he says he had an experience, and his heart was strangely warmed. And that Anglican priest was John Wesley. That other priest that traveled with him was Charles Wesley. And those Moravians left an impact that would become part of the seed that would lead these men and others to be part of a great revival movement in England, a great revival movement in the Church of England, the Anglican Church, that got tagged with this derogatory term called Methodism. Methodism. It was a source, it was a quote of derision. It was an insult that became a badge of honor that would shape the movement of a church that has shaped Millions of lives since those Wesley boys walked the earth, including mine and many of yours. Because they not only become, became men of impact, but it was because they had influences in their lives that were significant impact. Attitude that leads to action that leaves an impact. That's what Paul and Silas did. And a jailer and his entire household were ever saved because of it. We're here 
Our lives are what they are because we've had people in our lives leave an impact because of their attitude and their action. Are we leaving a similar impact? Are we living into that same kind of faith? That becomes our challenge, not only to learn from those, but to become like them, like Paul and Silas, or John and Charles Wesley, or a group of Moravians whose names we don't even know. But it is an attitude focused on the trust that God's presence in all circumstances that shapes our actions, that turns us from an inward focus to an outward focus and allows us to have lives of impact. I know and believe there are men and women in your life who you can celebrate who have done that. My prayer is that someday when I leave this earth, that there are a few people who can say, you know what? Chris's attitude and his action left an impact. Because there's a lot of times it's not what it ought to be. But I hope every once in a while, by God's grace, I can get it right. And that I can have that impact. But not just me, you. Not just you, us. That we can be difference makers. Attitude. Action. Impact. Let's pray. Lord, may these words challenge and shape us. Because we have the example of people in our lives that you have blessed in our lives that have been this for us, that have exemplified these words of attitude, action, and impact, and help us to to model them. We know that too often we get it wrong, but by God's grace, by your grace, every once in a while we get it right. And may we live into the faith of Christ and those who have come before us. We pray it in his precious and holy name. Amen.